Today's guest is a brilliant entrepreneur and also a deep thinker and brilliant speaker. Greg Marsh is best known for being the founder of One Fine Stay, effectively a high-end Airbnb, which he sold to the French hotel group Accor for 148 million euros. After that, he joined the board of Amnesty International and became a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. A couple of years ago, he began to formulate his next plan, which was to help households tackle their bills. Each year, a household overspends in the region of 500 to 1,000 pounds per year. This, of course, has taken on extra meaning with the cost of living challenges. Greg has been taking a content-first approach and has been on our TVs, airwaves, and in the newspapers talking about the challenge. The new venture is called Naus, as in Naus for your house. This episode really is packed with insight from start to finish. I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we did recording it. Greg, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. So you found one fine stay and you exited that business. You then went off and did some very interesting things with Amnesty International and, and Harvard Business School. Why did you decide to do a business again? I don't know. I sometimes think my career journey has been a kind of, I mean, I'm hugely indecisive really in most of my career moves. And I think what that stems from is, is not really ever having had a clear sense of a vocation in life. My sister's a doctor. And I remember when she was about 10, she turned up one morning and said, you know, I want to be a doctor. And we all sort of said, well, you know, that'll last. But it actually did. And she is now a very successful doctor. And, uh, and, she, and she enjoys it. You know, it's fulfilling and it's a meaningful career and, you know, all the rest of it. I never had a clue. I mean, I was an architect one week and an astronaut the next week and a fireman the week after. And I think at some level, I still am. That journey, you know, I, I started out in investment and then I did some entrepreneurial stuff and then I did some more investment stuff. And then I started One Fine Stay and then I saw One Fine Stay and in a sense, part of me is like, well, maybe now I can figure out what it actually is I should be doing with my life. But when I started One Fine Stay, one of the very clear ideas I'd had in my mind was, well, even if this goes horribly badly, at least when I sort of go cap in hand back to Index Ventures or some other investment firm, I'll do so with, a, with an informed humility about how hard it is to, to build businesses and hopefully by extension being a better investor in turn. And so I, that was always there in the back of my mind. Maybe now finally I'm qualified. I'm qualified to be on other people's boards. So I tried a bit of that. And then the teaching thing came out of the blue. I mean, I was at a, at a conference in Boston and one of my former HBS professors just said, hey, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't actually know. And he said, well, come here for a bit, you know, have fun. I even ended up helping to direct a production of Tosca, would you believe it? And ended up, I think, with this sort of mix of a slightly haphazardly assembled and non-strategic mix of sort of plural options, right? So I had a little bit of investing, a little bit of advisory, a bit of board, and I was comfortably off and I, you know, had sort of the family in the background. It was a really wonderful life phase in many ways. And yes, I felt deeply unfulfilled. And I think part of what's behind that is entrepreneurship ruins you in some ways. You know, you get used both to being your own boss and having the autonomy and having sort of total responsibility at one remove. I mean, clearly it's a shared journey. I had co-founders at One Fine Stay. I have co-founders at NAS. The best bits of the entrepreneurial journey have no equal, at least for me, in working life. The sense of enormous fulfillment and accomplishment you get when you deliver something. Maybe part of it's about searching for those highs, but part of it, I think, is a genuine sense that I don't think there is anything harder in the professional sphere. And I think of that collaborative creative enterprise in the real world, I don't know where else to find that. 
And talk to us about Nous, because this is your new venture. And explain to us what it is, because it's all there to tackle the cost of living crisis and to help people become more efficient with household bills, etc., which is one of the real bugbears of modern day life. Our journey into Nous, our being John, Christian, Glenn and me and sort of the founding group, the brief we set ourselves at the outset was not to help combat the cost of living crisis. What there was was a systemic dysfunction in the way that people buy, bought and still buy the stuff we have to buy but don't want to buy, energy, broadband, but it really matters. And taken collectively along with you know mortgage payments, for instance, for a typical household in the UK, this is probably 40% of what you spend your money on as a household. So by extension, 40% of GDP, give or take. So this is an enormously important part of the total economy. And it's a part of the economy that absorbs a hell of a lot less than 40% of our time and attention as consumers. We might meticulously debate, you know, which brand of, I don't know, toothpaste to buy or genuinely have a different consumption experience if we buy this kind of coffee or that kind of coffee at the supermarket, uh, or even a really boring thing like toilet paper matters. Whereas the decision you make about who supplies your energy, while it should matter, actually has no effect on when you switch the light switch, whether the lights come on and which electrons flow down which pipe doesn't actually affect your life very much. So as a consequence, we underinvest as a species in this class of decision. You could say, uh, you know, the economist in one that craves to say there is a form of market failure here. Mm. And one way to think about where entrepreneurial endeavor can have purchase is seek market failure seek to seek to resolve market failure. So there's a sort of intellectual argument there. Now around that, I think, is a series of other considerations. One is that the consequence of this system dysfunction is that there are large swaths of the, of the population who are disfavored by this, and quite prejudicially so, right? Busy people, and I don't necessarily mean rich busy people. I mean I mean, sort of middle-income busy people get really screwed over by this. People with kids and a you know, dog and a car outside, they don't have time to optimize this stuff. And they end up overpaying, typically £500,000 a year of overpaying, like very material sums for a typical UK household. The other thing is it's, it's lower income families and those who are less economically fortunate or less economically sophisticated or, or, or less numerate who get disfavored by this. And again, often very prejudicially so, right? Very disadvantaged. Right now we're seeing it play out on the front pages of our newspaper, people being forced onto prepayment contract terms with their energy suppliers, for instance. Sometimes that's because they've run out of money. Sometimes it's because they never really understood the deal they were on in the first place. When it really breaks into the front pages, because there is a generational shock to living standards caused by these inflation triggers. And suddenly, you know, we debated as a founding team, uh, before we started the business, well, yes, there's a big problem here. Yes, there's market failure. Yes, the economic importance is enormous and there's social value to this. But can we actually motivate people to care about their bills? Is anyone ever going to talk about their bills at the pub? Well, guess what? It's kind of all that anyone was talking about by the start of 2023. And that, I think, is, you know, sometimes life gives you lemons. This this has blown its way onto the front pages. I now feel that not only is now you know, here to try to solve a practical problem, but I think there's also immediate social utility in our having voice and having presence and trying to be part of that debate and supporting people. Yeah, exactly. And that was going to be one of my questions is that I remember looking at this a lot in government. You know, we had teams dedicated to how do you get consumers to switch more? And, you know, because you've always been able to save £500,000, which has always been a decent sum of money, but even more so now with everything that's going on. Why and how do you think business will be better at doing this than government? 
the philosophy that pervaded through was one in which more consumer choice, consumer choice is good, therefore more consumer choice is better. And that is true when markets operate effectively, when there is a consumption and there's substance to the consumption decision. I think it really works. When there isn't really substance to the consumption decision, I mean, the archetypal example of this for me is changing bank accounts. You know, the, the data is compelling. People switch life partners more readily than they change banks. Now, that is despite the fact that the FCA has instrumented a relatively complete infrastructure for allowing you to switch your current account or savings account provider. You go to a new provider, you tell them, I want to switch. The entirety of the procedural sort of aspects of that switch are now handled in a regulated manner by uh, the SCA. So your bank, your new bank will manage this with your old bank. Sometimes a small number of things go wrong, though honestly, very rarely. And so most people could literally walk into, I don't know who's doing an offer. I mean, Nat West was doing an offer a few weeks ago where they will literally pay you, I think, £200 to change your current account back. Now, I haven't gone and done the exact kind of, you know, stack ranking of which, which banking app has which features, but I would be willing to wager that if you're currently with HSBC and you move to NatWest, you will have pretty much an identical banking experience. So why wouldn't you pick up £200? It's right on the pavement in front of you and someone else will do the work, but people don't. And what's behind that is a really powerful consumer insight, a deeply powerful consumer insight, and it underpins many successful business models, let's be clear, which is that Anything that I can reasonably put off to do tomorrow, I will put off to do tomorrow. My co-founder, Glenn Quips, that who are we really competing with? We're not competing with, I don't know, compare the markets or what have you. We're actually competing with emptying the dishwasher. Because if you don't empty the dishwasher, you're going to get into an almighty argument with your other half. If you don't sort out the car insurance, if you don't sort out the energy and you know go and find a cheaper deal for your broadband, well, nothing really will change except maybe you're going to pay slightly more. So there's something about the incentive function here, which is broken. Because if I sent you a bill in the post, if I sent you a fine, I should say, for £20 because you didn't get around to doing that in time, my goodness, you jump off your, your backside and you'd be angry about it. But precisely because we've automated so much and made so much convenience around the payment infrastructure, I mean, the direct debit machinery works in this country extremely well. And I was looking at the US market last week with our friends from, 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 from Harvard. And you know, in the US, because there isn't that well-oiled machinery in many cases for automation of payment services, people are much more present and aware of what they're currently paying for their services. But here we've got direct debits, they work, it's very inexpensive. And so we barely notice the fact that we're overpaying or could be paying less. So the short answer to your question is there is a problem. It's a problem born of the amount of sophistication and convenience in our banking infrastructure in the UK, which in which in one respect in which we're basically world leading for a major economy. But what we've created for ourselves in that is a sort of inertia trap for householders. And so I think you've got to change, fundamentally change the market structure. What you've got to do is say the inertia works for consumers rather than against consumers. In other words, the mouse product will manage this decision-making for you. You are outsourcing or delegating responsibility, not just for recommending, but actually for procuring those services. We're not doing this for commission. We don't work for the providers of these services. Right In that respect, it's a fundamentally, we're not facing the industry, we're facing households. And we intend to operate as an agent, an intelligent automated agent for householders in actually doing that work for them. I look at startup and scale-up career pages all the time. And I'm not just saying this because you're here, but I honestly think that Nouses was 
probably the best I've ever seen. And it's certainly the most honest. And one of the things that I really enjoyed on it was the fact that you were open about being pre-product market fit. And that probably comes from the fact that you're an experienced founding team and you're comfortable being able to say that. But where do you think in time the product market fit will come for the product? As we had this conversation in January, we're teetering on the edge of uh, a pretty serious assay with a sort of live revenue generating pilot likely in the next few weeks. So it may well be that, you know, uh, within a few weeks or small number of months, we are post-product market fit and, you know, health or leather trying to scale this thing. A few things to say, and I really appreciate the question because it's a, I also grateful for the generosity of your comments, you know, checks in the post. <laughs> I made a whole series of, a wild uh, series of mistakes first time around as an entrepreneur at one point in the day. We didn't get everything wrong by any stretch, but we did make lots of errors. One of them was, I think, animated by an intense anxiety about wanting to reach product fit. And granted, as a first-time entrepreneur, you don't have a lot of rope, right? You don't have a lot of runway. You can't go raise lots of money. So you sort of have maybe one shot at goal. And if you screw that up, then you might not get a second shot. It's a bit different the second time around. People will give you a little bit more leeway. But when we hit, and I vividly remember the day that it happened, in uh, uh, early 2010, at one point stay, when we hit that first intimation of, my goodness, the dogs want to eat the dog food, right? The thing that we're offering the world people want to buy, everything changed. And we suddenly moved into execution mode long before, with the wondrous benefit hindsight, we actually understood what the minimum viable offering was that would have achieved a similar effect. Put simply, we over-engineered and over-offered. And scaling an over-engineered or over-specified product was fine at the very early stages and then became phenomenally hard as the business got larger. It wasn't that we didn't meet market need, we overmet market need. And in our anxiety and eagerness to scale, We've therefore committed ourselves to an operational complexity, which I wouldn't say it prevented us uh, from succeeding, but I'd say, my goodness, it was like running around with a ball and chain attached to your leg. So one of the things that animates this go round, if you will, is I think a little bit more deliberation and deliberateness about determining, right, this is what the, the, the market truly needs. We have a very clear idea of what the end of that end state of that looks like. We know what ultimately a product vision would look like that would transform the industry, but it will take years to build all of that. And so in the meantime, what is the least we can get away with offering a, a community of users who, to use that lovely expression, whose hair is on fire, such that an early minimum viable product still meets that set of needs. And then there's a ton of literature and a ton of research, and I had the luxury of a bit of my time off uh, when I was uh, sort of uh, 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 over in Boston with the business school, really reflecting on some of that sort of wisdom, best practice. There is a ton of stuff around the heuristics, organizational pathways, which I think minimize the time cost of that journey. But it ain't for everyone. This phase of business, I mean, I think it's tremendously fun, but it's very ambiguous. It's a, it's a high ambiguity phase of business development. There's a very high level of aerodynamic instability, if you will, to what you are doing, because on you know week to week or month to month, you are exploring and testing into different sort of market niches and opportunities. Whereas I think as you start to scale up, the work you do, the product and technology work you do is much more accretive by nature. And so you have much more of a sense of progress that comes for free, where it doesn't necessarily mean that progress is real progress. You might be accretively building something that is the wrong thing, but you nevertheless psychologically feel like you're building on the work that you've done in the past. One of the things that struck me on the website was you talked about being an office first company. 
and that is not perhaps something that's you know particularly in, in vogue at the moment. And also, it was clear that you do three days a week in the office, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I'd love to hear a bit about the kind of like how you think that builds culture, why that's important in the early days, and why those three days in particular. Well, I tend to be in the office every day, pretty much every day. And I think there's a handful of us who do. In my case, I have a short commute. In some other cases, it's because folks, you know, prefer to work in the office or don't have as comfortable a home set up. We, we don't have a hard rule about uh, a minimum office time. We, we kind of encourage people to be present as much as possible. It comes back to the same insight or same pattern of insight around early stage business formation development. Everyone does product work in an early stage business and product work is extremely high context work. In order to have insight, whether you have insight as a marketing professional, as a product marketer, uh, whether you're having insight as a commercial person, whether you have insight in a, in a sort of applied a technology role uh, or a deep tech role, so much of knowing what is useful is understanding what has been done, what hasn't been done, where the product is and where it needs to be. Now, as businesses scale up and mature, you can institutionalize, if you want, for want of a better term, managerialize a lot of that. And you can delegate responsibility for componentry, um, both technology and product componentry, also business building componentry, to people who have less context. That's fine. You can do that. The cost of doing that is twofold. Firstly, threefold if you want to be complete. Firstly, you've got to build a management layer in a business. And that abstracts away certain product resolution groups from the sort of product ideation and solution thinking. Secondly, uh, you, you are, if you want, giving people more time because they have to allocate time and energy to context development or, or context maintenance in their working day. They can just get on with doing the thing they're tasked to do. But it means that they can't make as informed a set of autonomous decisions about what the right thing to do is. So you're also depriving them of some of that autonomy, right? And thirdly, it puts much more burden of decision-making onus on the, effectively the most senior people in the business because you've got to get it right. If you've got one person at the top of the company who makes all of the decisions and they just sort of give out task work to the junior people, right? It's a pretty old-fashioned way of thinking about business building, but the person at the top better be making all the right decisions. They better have perfect information. My experience is quite often it's, the, it's people who are at the coalface who have much better information. So turning the organization upside down and saying, no, actually, the person writing the code, the person doing the design work, the person who's doing the commercial discussions actually probably has a much better sense. And if you can give them context at the cost of interrupting their day with giving them context, then they will make better decisions and the organization will learn faster. It's not that you cannot do it with lots of explicit and formal meeting structures around a sort of remote first environment. But my goodness, it's so much easier if you're in an office together because you overhear the conversation that someone else is having. You feel that there's something over there which is really working. You see that everyone's huddling around a screen because they can't solve a particular technical problem. And those things sort of pervade your liminal consciousness and they inform your own awareness on the one hand of what the organization's capabilities are and on the other hand of what the market need and customer expression of that need truly is. One of the other things that you're doing this time which is differentiating yourselves is that you're almost becoming a content first business and obviously that's partly what we're doing here at jimmy's jobs as well right is you're creating lots of this content which is useful for people to consume and i also see that you're hiring for a head of content at the moment who's going to report into you and 
you yourself at the moment are second on our screens only to Martin Lewis in terms of giving that advice on the cost of living crisis and so on. Can you talk to us about the sort of logic about why you're doing this and why you think it's such an important part for the business? There was no plan at the outset uh, of sort of building um, sort of my profile as a TV pundit or even thinking that we would build the business's brand in a, in a uh, around a cost of living narrative that postdated the inception of the business, it was pretty self evidently an opportunity that existed. Nature abhors a vacuum, and there was, and I think still is, an enormous demand, an unmet demand from media, print media, broadcast media, for help communicating to people and help people understand what this cost of living crisis means to them and how they can navigate it. So I think to some extent, this is a reaction to circumstance. And then what you start to feel is that there's fit there. You get, you get a sense that there is traction. Um, and then with that has come, I mean, last year was a mixed blessing, really. On the one hand, as you say, we sort of established ourselves at the beginning. I wouldn't say, I wouldn't overstate this. But, you know, it's been a, an extraordinary journey. We've had about 2,000 pieces of national and regional media coverage over the sort of now 10-month period since we put our heads above the parapet in sort of March 2022. Almost all of that essentially has been kind of work that the founding team has done, and it has been very distracting. So it comes at a cost. And so in seeking to try now to find someone who can lead the content work, I think of that almost as sort of a, uh, an intellectual leadership role in the business actually helping now establish its intellectual credentials, but also to do that partly to insulate, I don't mind if it blows my diary out, but partly to insulate some of my co-founders from from the implications of being that responsive to media need, but also to try to do this in a more strategic and programmatic way over the next year or two as firstly the cost of living narrative evolves in the public domain, but secondly as the Naus product enters the public domain and as we actually have the beginnings of business, you know, what role in that context will content and our brand voice play versus the way that we had to think about content and brand when we were pre-product? How do you measure the impact of what media you do? And as a sort of ancillary question to that as well, which one has surprised you in terms of the impact it's had? So politicians, for example, often talk about regional media being, you know, having a greater impact than actually appearing on Sky News or something, because, you know, people are trusting the local media a bit more and their relationship is deeper with it. I'd love your reflections on what you have learned. Yeah. So we got, again, a lot of this is serendipity. In fact, our internal awards on a monthly basis, when we do our awards, the, the award we give out is the reasons lost in the mists of history, the cactus award, we call it. And we celebrate serendipity. Uh, and my pithy line is, you know, uh, success in business as in life is a function of luck, talent, and ambition. But let's be honest, mostly luck. And so the idea that you're sort of, you know, you're, you're open-minded to the possibility that it's really just good luck a lot of the time. We got really lucky in, I mentioned this small agency we work with. I'm happy to give them voice for this because I really appreciate the work they've done. A firm called Hound. And a senior chap there, Alan, is, uh, has a background as a journalist at the Sun, he was um, Edwards, a, a night editor at The Sun for many years. The speed at which and the confidence with which he can turn a headline, find the story, he's just, it's, it's, it's a real masterclass working with him. And I think I left my own devices would naturally have sort of embraced a, let's call it a, a sort of radio for audience. I would have gone 
I would have sought authority rather than seeking awareness, profile, and breadth. Yes, that might have made me feel good. It might actually have made you know, people who I know be more likely to encounter the brand. Uh, I mean, the other end of the spectrum, right? One Fine Stay essentially mostly serviced the needs on both ends of the market of relatively affluent people. So almost everyone I speak to you know, in the venture capital community has heard of One Fine Stay or stayed at one. And they think it's very well penetrated as a brand, right? Go and tap someone on the shoulder in the street outside and they wouldn't have heard of it. I wonder whether almost the opposite is happening with Mouse. And I give Alan a lot of the credit for this because he's so effortlessly writes with a sort of a, a red top voice because he reaches into the mid-market uh, sort of narrative because he can write for a community of people who don't enjoy reading or read when it serves utilitarian purposes rather than sort of uh, 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 pedagogic ones. He has been hugely helpful for us and hugely instrumental for us in reaching a much larger audience much earlier. So I'm not quite answering your question about channel or asking your question about which particular media outlet, but I'd say tone of voice, left to my own devices, I would have gone too high, even though intellectually I knew that was not quite right. Our audience is not you know, the 1% in Hoxton. I'm not interested in them. I, I'm not saying they don't all, some of them face cost of living challenges, but honestly, they're going to be just fine. The people we're really worried about, I'm going to give you an example. We did this campaign with the Sun uh, a few months ago about social tariffs. Some 4 million households in the UK could save probably the better part of £200 per household, which is real money. Um, if there's a household on universal credit, so £200 for a household on universal credit is very, very, very material uh, a, a sort of impact. If they move from their current broadband contract to a social tariff, all the main broadband providers offer social tariffs as a government initiative and supervised by uh, Ofcom, actual uptake of social tariffs in the market of that 4.2 million qualifying households is around 2.5%. So there is a fundamental lack of awareness and engagement by the population in uh, the relevant population of these tariff forms. Why? It's because the companies who supply social tariffs, British Telecom, Virgin, Sky, have no commercial incentive to promote them. And so who is filling that gap? And so it was evident to me that the people we needed to speak to were not, it's not Radio 4 listeners or hand-wringing Guardian readers who, yes, they'd be you know, on board with the program intellectually and politically, but they aren't the ones who are on the universal credit for the most part. Whereas a meaningful proportion of some readers are or know someone who is. And if we can talk to those people, if we can reach over that chasm, you know, middle-class, affluent London, and get out there, and it's not just about regional, it's about social demographic, and it's about class. If we can get to people who are suffering by talking to them where they are having those conversations, we can impact their lives much more effectively. I would love to say we have totally crushed kind of TikTok and social media. We've had some success there, and that's also clearly a place where people are going. I mean, like some of my sky clips, and one of them was shared like 700,000 times on TikTok, for instance. So there's clearly something there that's working. I think we have more work to do to crack how to use TikTok as a channel, for instance, or uh, you know, other social media to that wider market. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, we, we're doing a lot more on TikTok, and I was similar to what you were saying about the authority side. I was very skeptical of it in the beginning and not sort of supportive, not thinking it's where that we should be as a sort of, you know, quite 
you know, serious business corporate kind of podcast in, in a way that does want to democratize careers advice to the mass market. And because of that, that's the only place that really we, we need to be is TikTok at the moment, because that's where a huge amount of people are. And actually being able to condense an episode of a 45 minute podcast into 60 seconds is a real skill. And like, actually, I think that we don't give Generation Z the credit they, they deserve. And, and they are all becoming kind of creators in their own right in terms of the videos that they're doing. And I, I do think it's a really interesting way of communicating. And, and you're right that the sort of radio for crowd that we might be part of, uh, you know, don't, don't sort of appreciate that as, as much. And it's, it's fascinating to, to see. And that's why it's so interesting to get your view on on content creation and where that's that's heading because i do think that any business that is uh that is a, a b2c business um or listed on the stock exchange is going to have to find ways of engaging with um the public in in different ways and almost have its own media brand and that's a um that, that's a big change that's coming i i agree and i think that it demands different competencies of a business um uh, I don't want to. I don't want to claim too much credit for our ability to master those media. I think we are. We're sort of. We're we're still on the sort of stumbling early steps of this. We had some early hits, but that's been that's been more of a random walk than it has a sort of structured program. I've talked to some folks who've had tremendous programmatic uh, and strategic success using TikTok as a way to build their brand, and I think there are there are things that work. But you know, you are trying to tether yourself to a bucking bronco because that algorithm is still going through very rapid iteration cycles um what works today won't work in a year's time and it doesn't mean it can't be a way to build brands i'm sure that it can but you know you have to have a wholehearted commitment to it if you're going to hold on to that thing while it while it sort of moves around versus you know there is a very well established playbook for how you engage regional media and how you get the word out there and those let's call them less fashionable channels, still have enormous reach and cut through. And you've got to have a, a you've got to have a story to tell. You've got to have something to say. You've got to be helpful and relevant to people. You've got to have insight. But if you have those things, um, you know, stay in with the outs. Just because there is a new thing doesn't mean the old things have stopped working. You know, it's, it's only now we're disconnecting fax machines. And, you know, goodness knows, uh, it's been an awfully long time since email was invented. So uh, uh, even if in, you know, 30 years from now, there is a lesser role for regional print media. It may take a long time for for those media really to stop being relevant to people. And I don't just mean the elderly people or, you know, people in older sort of demographics. I mean, you know, we still read books in print. You know, we still read newspapers a bit and we certainly still consume media from a very, very broad variety of sources beyond just, you know, sort of Twitter, TikTok and Instagram. Who's somebody, you mentioned a couple of people there that have really cracked it on TikTok. Who would you say is worth checking out to our listeners, putting you on the spot now? Uh, I think what Harry Stebbings is doing is really interesting. Yeah, definitely. 20-minute VC. It's, uh, yeah, it's a beast in itself. And on that, because that ties in with that, I would say, is although Harry's almost become an institutional fund in his own right now, but you've built a bit of an all-star team of angels and you've used venture capital with Mosaic as well. But I was very intrigued reading the pieces about when you raised the seed financing that you have assembled a bit of an all-star cast of angels. Can you talk us through, as a second-time founder, why that's been your chosen method this time? Yeah, I came across this term, New Game Plus, recently. Um, 
Uh, I don't know if there's any gamers in your audience, but sometimes when you complete a video game at the end, you'll get a chance to play it again and you get all the weapons and skills that you've accumulated in your first go round. Uh, but you play, get to play the game again. So the very first couple of levels are easy, but you have to play it on nightmare mode or, you know, the hardest level of difficulty. So like at the very beginning, it's easier. And then you suddenly realize, oh my goodness, no, this isn't easy at all. This is really hard. It's just like got more weaponry. Um, so I feel like there's an analogy there for second time around entrepreneurs. It makes my reflections on this a bit less generalizable. As, as a second around entrepreneur, um, you have an existing um, sort of network you can draw on, but you also have just a little bit of credibility you can draw down, right? You might not get a third shot if you screw that up, but you know you at least have a have a, a, a whole pass for the for, for the first set of conversations with angel investors or VCs. The second thing is we were fortunate. I talk about luck, right? Luck matters a lot in business, and we were lucky in that we went out to raise our angel round at a time when the market was in an upswing. We didn't go then raise a Series A and a Series B and a Series C. It sort of I watch really high prices, so I, I don't want to. I don't want to overstate that. But we did get enough cash in the bank that you know we have at the moment about three years of kind of runway at the current deployment pace, which is plenty of time to figure stuff out, and I hope to accelerate for a while as and when we find product market validation and still be able to do that before we have to go raise capital. So we're in a sort of fortunate position of having raised enough uh, uh, on, on sort of good terms while the market was was was, was vibrant. Um, the, the actual decision I made was, yeah, I mean, and I'm talking to a lot of other second-time entrepreneurs at the time, many of whom decided to take a different path, which is they got into bed with one venture capital fund and that venture capital firm supplied them, uh, I wouldn't, overstate it, but an arbitrary amount of cash. Uh, and they also took a board seat in a relatively traditional kind of, uh, you know, control position uh, in, in in the capital table. I, I had a preference to do it the other way around. And so we did a party round. It was extremely distributed. No one has more than a, a few percent of business apart from the founders. And of course, in due course, I imagine we will, when we raise, if we raise a Series A, do a more conventional thing where we have a board with investors on it. I'm a little bit, many of my best friends are venture capitalists, but I am a little bit skeptical about the value that a venture capital firm qua governance can actually add to a business at the early stages. I think basically boards are negative control instruments. What you want as an entrepreneur at the early stages, you want advice when you want it. You want help that you can call on your behest, not in the control of a board member. If the business doesn't work out, if you don't meet product market fit, or if you do meet product market fit and you screw up the early scaling because the entrepreneur can't get it right, can't figure out how to tame the horses, or you know, doesn't have the confidence judgment or just gets unlucky, there is nothing that a board can do to fix those early stage businesses. Those businesses will probably fail. And I think there's a sort of learned helplessness that a sophisticated, more mature investor has to develop, which is to recognize that basically you are betting on an entrepreneur. But it's really easy to say that. Venture capitalists will often say that at panel events. They'll very rarely act with the conviction that that implies. And it's so tempting as a board member to want to tell an entrepreneur what to do and how to do it, particularly if you kind of seen this movie before. The reality is they probably know most of the time, they probably already know what they should be doing. They're probably struggling to do it. Maybe they're struggling to cope. Maybe they're dealing with all sorts of other things they're not telling you about. Most of what your job is as an early stage board member for early stage companies that do have boards is to sit there patiently and provide pastoral help. It's not actually to advise or certainly not to govern. Cut to the chase. I am very skeptical of the value of early stage boards. Uh, 
sorry, early stage venture investors, I don't think boards have much value. And by the way, I think some more sophisticated seed funds have got this. You know, Local Globe doesn't take a board seat at the earlier stages. Early stage seed funds often pass on board seats because they know they can't really do much on boards at that stage. And it's just a distraction for everybody. I was trying to avoid that. I didn't really want to live under a lick press stack earlier than I had to. You know, what I mean by that is when you raise uh, Series A, Series B capital, you're sitting under, you know, 10, 20 million of, of committed equity, which means that if the business sells for 10 or 20 million, you know, you ain't making nothing as an entrepreneur. Now, we have no intention. My co-founders and I are building a business that's only worth 10 or 20 million. But nor do I want to deprive my my junior team members of the possibility of a modest equity return if, you know, God forbid, we did end up having to sell the business 12, 18 months now for spare parts or in a distressed sale. You know, in which case it might not have a huge impact on you know, on the on the founders, but goodness me, it could certainly be a meaningful sum of cash for some of the early team members. And I don't want to put them in the position where I'm asking them to work for free under the scenario that you know we don't succeed. So for all those reasons, I wanted to avoid uh, structured equity. I wanted to avoid a board. Uh, and I was fortunate in having a sort of network among angels. And then we got lucky, right? A lot of people were very enthusiastic about the space we are pursuing. I've got a really smart co-founding team who also helped coalesce a group of angels. So we ended up with 65, 70 odd you know, angel investors in the capital table. And then the, the game is just making sure that you structure that in a way that's light touch from a governance perspective. So you're not spending all your time kind of managing process. Just a couple more questions. One we've talked about a lot before in the past, but is you've spent con- considerable time in Boston at Harvard. You know, what can the UK ecosystem learn from the United States? What more could we do to have a bit more of that ambition that is so prevalent over there? Yeah, there's, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I was at, um, I was very lucky. I took this HBS group every year. I bring them to London to sort of meet UK entrepreneurs, plug into startup companies. They're sort of, you know, each in small groups plugged into UK companies. Um, and then we sort of program events around that mornings and evenings. So a very intense couple of weeks for me because I'm doing a day job as well. But, you know, and that gives, I think it was really, we had a, we were had an invitation to, uh, to Downing Street. So I got to sort of, you know, meet, meet the powers that be there and hear, and here's some of what I think they are thinking about how to try to attract entrepreneurs. Interesting time, the entrepreneurial community, in that I think, you know, um, whereas under Johnson's administration, you know, clearly he provocatively re- re- repudiated business. I won't use the F word, but we know what he said. And it hasn't actually, I don't think, been since David Cameron was at number 10 that we've had an administration in office that was so... Uh, explicitly enthusiastic about the entrepreneurial agenda. You know, Jeremy Hunt, our chancellor, is actually uh, a former entrepreneur himself, Richard Sunak, MBA at Stanford, so clearly kind of, you know, has drunk the Kool-Aid. There's lots to favour the moment we're in, provided that, and it's it's a huge proviso uh, from an administrative perspective, the government actually has any freedom of manoeuvre. I mean, given the cost of living crisis and the parlous state of public finances, it's hard to see them doing any sort of significant fiscal stuff. But for instance, this visa has recently been announced that welcomes anyone from a top 50 global university to the UK, no questions asked for two years. That's a good idea. Um, I think there's lots of stuff in similar vein, which is not fiscal, but which is sort of regulatory, which could make the UK uh, an even more attractive place for mobile global talent. I won't hold back. I think that Brexit was an enormous end goal. I think that it certainly sends the message, whether rightly or whether intentionally or otherwise, that Britain's not that interested in in people coming here. 
And what you hear when you talk to successful UK investors is London is important, UK is important, but it's important not only because, and even not principally because of the UK market, it's important because it's entrepôt. It is where Europe comes and where the region comes. And so its power, London's relevance as a capital centre and as an entrepreneurial hub is a function of how uh, porous our borders are and how welcoming we are to talent. And if we don't welcome people, they will go to Berlin, they will go to Amsterdam, they will go to Stockholm, which are also you know, benefiting from the same agglomeration effects that benefited London during its ascent. So I think we've got uh, lots to learn. Uh, from uh, uh, from the US in respect of making sure it is really easy for highly talented people, for whether they're engineers, whether they're designers, whether they're entrepreneurs, or whether they're providing capital to navigate that uh, environment and move around. Um, and that, I think, is intention, really intention, with an anxiety that a lot of people in the UK, maybe further away from London, feel about the threats, whether real or actual perceived, of jobs going to overseas, of not being in control of their economic destiny, and of being crowded out by that competition. So it's ironic, isn't it, that London, which was the principal beneficiary of a lot of that immigration, was actually the part of the UK regionally that was most in favour of Brexit, where, uh, most in favour, rather, of remaining, whereas it's the regions which benefited least from an influx of uh, sort of foreign uh, of foreign talent that were most sceptical and anxious about it. I think there's lots to unpick there. This isn't the time to do that. But I think we've got to keep our borders open and we've got to be open-minded about how to do that. The final thing I'll say is America is cursed and blessed by a, a, a surfeit of credulity, right? Given uh, nothing else, an America, America believes. America believes first and then asks questions later. And that has all sorts of downsides. It has all sorts of risks. You know, it means that crazy ideas take. But some crazy ideas are brilliant ideas. And I think we take pride in Britain of our skepticism, of our cynicism at times, and of our, our sort of, we are armoured in irony. And to some extent, while that makes our comedy output fantastic, uh, it also, I think, inhibits our aptitudes and our willingness to test and try and embrace the kind of crazy maverick ingenuity of the entrepreneur. And on that note, as a final question, who is an entrepreneur that we should interview on the show at some point this year? Pass the mic to another entrepreneur. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about a lady called um, Rebecca. And Rebecca is an entrepreneur who has built a business called Venue Scanner. Um, Venue Scanner is a two-sided booking marketplace uh, for event space, right? So the idea is you are a, uh, a, a, a an office assistant or a, a business manager at a FTSE 100 company, and you've got to organize a team offsite. Where do you go to find a venue that's suitable for the event? And where you go, increasingly now, is Venue Scanner. Now, it's always been thus. It's always been a challenge finding a kind of a, a liquid marketplace for that capacity. It's a hard graph two-sided marketplace. You've got to hustle your way into the business. And Rebecca and her co-founder got going on that uh, in the late, uh, uh, it's about sort of four or five years ago, uh, and were having very significant success. Um, and in fact, I got to, I, I'm a, I must declare my interest. I'm a small investor in her business. Um, and in about late uh, 2019, early 20, she was just about ready to go out and raise her Series A round. She just hit a sort of 1 million a month run rate on the top line. It was growing beautifully, kind of 30, 40% month on month. She, she'd cracked it. In March that year, her revenues went to zero. COVID 
literally shuttered her business. Uh, the lockdown totally closed her business down. And what did Rebecca do? Well, there's all sorts of things she could have done. What she did, I am in awe of. So she put her entire business almost immediately. She read the runes. She put the whole thing into deep freeze. She had to let go of pretty much the entire organization bar sort of one product person. She moved back in with her parents and lived on sort of ramen noodles. Um, and she preserved the little bit of cash she had at the time uh, in order to retool the business. She also ended up partly recapitalizing the business over the next 18 months. She had a founder apart and came out of that unbelievable journey through the wilderness is now trading at beyond uh, restarted cold restart right as the economy reopened a year ago and is now trading at above the level that she'd achieved in march 2020 from a cold start a second time round. she's still in control of this thing it's growing like a weed uh and i mean what a story of survival of stamina the important quality in entrepreneurship Amazing. Well, that is a super story to finish on. I'll get you to introduce me to Rebecca and we'll get her on later this year. It sounds, uh, sounds an amazing story. Greg, thanks so much for coming on. It is so brilliant to talk to you and get your views on so many things. I feel there are there are many hanging threads there that we could delve deeper into at a separate point, which would be great to do. And maybe you can come back on the show when you've got product market fit and talk to us about that as well. Look, Jimmy, what a pleasure. Thank you so much. Really interesting set of questions. And uh, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for your, for your time. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our TikTok and YouTube channels.